The Tudor History and Travel Show is a podcast that brings Tudor history to life by exploring Tudor places and artefacts in the flesh. You will be travelling through time with Sarah Morris, the Tudor Travel Guide, uncovering the stories behind some of the most amazing Tudor locations and objects in the UK. Because when you visit a Tudor building, it is only time and not space which separates you from the past. And now over to your host, Sarah Morris. Hello, my time travelling friends, wherever you are on planet Earth. It's Sarah here, the Tudor Travel Guide, tuning in again to take you on another time travelling adventure. And today we are heading north to North Yorkshire to see and explore a glorious medieval moated manor house, which is well off the tourist trail. So, if being well off the tourist trail and being surrounded by wonderful history is your bag, and of course it is, then of course you're going to enjoy this podcast. But before then, we have a little bit of housekeeping to attend to because I want to give a shout out to any of you out there who are planning a trip to the UK and London in particular. Now, I often get emails from folk overseas asking me questions, particularly about itineraries and places to visit and how to get around. And of course, for most people who are arriving from abroad into the UK, you will be spending some time in London. And so I am both excited and delighted to announce that in collaboration with my good Tudor-loving friend, uh, Philippa Brule from British History Tours, we are putting together a masterclass called Tudor London Made Easy, an essential guide to visiting the capital. So if you are heading this way or you've got a trip in your sights over the next few years, then you may well want to sign up. If you've got questions about what are the best Tudor places to visit and when you visit, what are the things you must see? How to get around London, how to save time and money. And if you have a limited time, what would be your must see places within a two, a three or a five day visiting window? Well, if any of those questions apply to you, my friends, then this masterclass will be perfect for you because you will have three hours in the company of Philippa and myself live on Zoom. And we'll be talking to you about 16 of what we believe are the most important Tudor places to visit, what you must look out for. And of course, we'll be going to all sorts of details about how you can best get around London. And as I said, maybe save some time and money in the process. And because we are live, you will be able to ask us some of your most pressing travel-related questions, specifically related to London. But hey, if you've got other traveling questions about getting around the UK and we can answer them, we'll be happy to do so. Registration for the Masterclass is now open, my friends. And if you want to join us or indeed find out a little more information, then you simply need to click on the link in the description associated with this podcast. 
and hopefully Philippa and I will see you there live on the 28th of May. Okay, my friends, well, it's time to get on with the show. Well, a little earlier this year, I headed north into my home county of North Yorkshire to visit Markenfield Hall. Now, the owners of Markenfield Hall tell you that it is one of the loveliest places you've never heard of. And they are quite possibly right because it is well off the usual tourist trail. But oh my goodness, what a historic gem it is. It is a medieval moated manor house with some fantastic Tudor history to boot. On a particularly icy cold, very early spring day, I went up to Markenfield Hall and was given a wonderfully warm reception. So let's go straight over and meet our guide, Kate Mainprize, who is going to give us a tour of the house and tell us all about its incredible medieval and Tudor history. So, without further ado, my friends, I give you Markenfield Hall. So, hello, dear listeners, and you join me in North Yorkshire, and I'm at the absolutely glorious venue of Markenfield Hall, which is a wonderful moated medieval manor house. Um, it's a place I've known for many years now, but haven't been too often, and I was delighted to get an invitation to come here and record a podcast today. And I'm joined here by Kate Mainprice, who's going to be our guide today. Hello, Kate. Thank you for being Hello, here. Hello, Sarah. Lovely to, to welcome you to our hidden gem, our hidden gem of the north. It is a hidden gem, isn't it? And it, maybe that's where we should start. Um, now, you're a guide here, aren't you, at Markenfield? How long have you been guiding here? I've been guiding here for, um, oh, it must be about eight years now. Okay. I've previously guided at Fountains Abbey. Oh, beautiful. So I'm steeped in the history of the area. Of the area. So let's just give people a little bit of a, 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 a sort of sense of geography. So here we are in North Yorkshire, we're on the edge of the Yorkshire Dales. We're about three to four miles south of uh, uh, Ripon, which is a city here in North Yorkshire. And, um, but, but yet, I'm standing here talking to you, surrounded by fields. This, as you said, is a hidden gem. Now tell me why is it a hidden gem? Well, there were a, a, a great deal of medieval uh, manor houses in the area uh, way back in, in the beginning of the medieval um, history. But in fact, this is the only medieval uh, manor house that has um, remained. Uh, it's a hidden gem. It wasn't always as hidden. <laughs> it's a hidden gem now, but at one time there was the medieval road that ran through from Ripley to Ripon. But in 1771, that was moved uh, to um, the A61, where it is now. Uh, it was a toll road. Uh, and therefore, it is completely off the beaten track. And I think you'll agree that when you're coming off the A61, you're driving up a long farm track, very muddy farm track at times, um, you've no idea what you're going to meet uh, round the corner. Um, people come here on a tour from Ripon 
and it's amazing how many of them say to me, do you know, I've lived in Ripon most of my life, I've driven past, I've seen the sign, never knew that it was here. Well, you are so correct, because I was brought up in the nearby town of Harrogate, and I lived there probably 25 years before I came along one day and was just wowed by this gorgeous house. Now, people who are listening to this or who read my blogs may know that I'm a big fan of Anthony Emery, who's a renowned architectural historian who's done a wonderful set of books called The Medieval Houses of England and Wales. And uh, he talks about this place as being one of the finest surviving examples of its type and of its age. And I'm sure in a moment we're going to talk about its medieval origins. But you specifically asked us to start this chat Adjacent to these fields, we've got, I just try and paint a picture for our lovely listeners. So I have the, the manor house in front of me. It's a beautiful moated manor house. And then over to my right hand side, all I can see are fields and some sheep and lots and lots of bumps and mounds. So what am I looking at, Kate? Well, you're looking basically at the 600 acres that forms the estate. Uh, which goes back as far as the Doomsday Book. So the Doomsday Book describes Markenfield as an estate of 600 acres. Of course, there's nothing housing left or whatever. Mm. But those, that field there with the lumps and bumps, uh, that there is definitely, there was a medieval hamlet there. And it must have been a hamlet that fed the, that, that housed the workers, the farm workers, on the estate, uh, and we also know that at some stage, uh, the last of the Markham Fields, uh, he went off, we'll talk about that after the rising of the North, he went off it, it, into exile in Flanders, uh, and we know that his wife and son lived out their life in poverty, probably in, well, in a peasant's cottage in that area. That must have been quite galling to have been the lord and lady of the manor and to, to look upon your house across the fields when you're living in such poverty. Well, it was terribly sad, the, 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 how the Markham Fields lost their title, how they lost their estate, their house. Uh, a very, very sad ending to an extremely um, forceful and prominent family. Yes. In, well, not only just in the north, but in England generally. So stay tuned for that, folks, because there is a great Tudor story. I did say this is a, med, uh, you know, a medieval manor house, and so it is. I'm going to talk about the medieval history right in a moment, but it's got some fascinating Tudor history. And as Kate has just mentioned, we're going to come back to that. So when was this hall actually built and by whom? Because as a, it sounds to me, I did a little bit of reading before I came here, very interesting character. Maybe you can tell us about the origins of the hall. Well, as I've said, the origins uh, go back to the Doomsday Book or before that, but it was mentioned in the Doomsday Book. Um, and then we come into the middle of the 12th century, uh, the 1200s, uh, and we know that that is when the first stone buildings were built and we still have those stone buildings today. So these are the real authentic thing? Some of it. <laughs> Some of it, not all of it, because then we move on to the end of the 1200s, the beginning of the 1300s, and we have a canon, John de Markenfield. He was a churchman. Um, he inherited along with his brother and it is uh, John de Markenfield who added 
more to the hall, uh, the great hall, the chapel, the solar. Uh, so that was the beginning of the 1300s. And in 1310, uh, he was given the license to crenellate by Edward III. Uh, he was very close to Edward III. And why did he get the license to crenellate? Well, uh, because Edward needed loyal henchmen up in this part of the world. He was fighting the Scots continually, more marauding over the, uh, um, the border. Um, but also, of course, he had his barons on his back because of his relationship with Piers Gaveston. Oh, right, yes. So he needed loyal friends, and John de Markenfield was one of those men. So he got the license to crenellate in 1310. Uh, and we can see the crenellation from yes, here. Yes, we can. He was the king's remembrancer. And um, the king's remembrancer obviously was not terribly popular with his neighbours, uh, collecting taxes, etc. And we also know he was a bit of a bully boy anyway. Um, so he, when he got the licence to crenellate, uh, it was a good story to sort of, uh, that perhaps it was to keep his um, enemy neighbours out rather than the Scots. Ah, uh. Because yes. it isn't heavily fortified. It's not a heavily fortified manor mm. house. It could have been much more keeping up with the neighbours, status symbol. Um, but it's very impressive, nonetheless. It's a beautiful building. And just to say, dear listeners, as usual, I'll do a show notes page because I'll be capturing some images while I'm here and uh, I'll also be making a short film of my visit here so do remember to check out my YouTube channel uh, where you'll be able to find that but can we just describe the buildings then that we can see in front of us what, what, am, what am I looking at at the moment well first of all you're looking at the moat uh, that is uh, probably was here right from the beginning um, it's fed by spring, so it doesn't ever freeze. And then we're looking at um, a Tudor manor house, uh, Tudor gate house, with a, a, a bridge across the moat. We don't think there was ever a drawbridge, right? But there's a lot goes back in history that we don't know. Um, and then you have in front of us, uh, which is the um, east side of the um, yeah, the ranges house. around the courtyard. Yeah. Yes, uh, you have. A range of buildings uh, which were the original 1200 buildings. Wow. They went straight along by the side of the moat and round the corner and it was then John de Markenfield who added the crenellated part uh, which was the Great Hall etc and we'll go and see that and then I can describe more when we're in the courtyard. Well maybe we should go there now and just um, look at the buildings from the other side. Yes. Okay. So we've just walked from the car park, just, a, just sort of 20, 30 metres, and we're now in the middle of the stone bridge that's crossing the moat. We've got a quite a dinky little gatehouse. It's a really cute little gatehouse, isn't it? It's fabulous, yes. It's very compact. Um, we know it's Tudor because when the roof was repaired, um, years ago, but when it was repaired, we, there are beams in the roof mm. and they were tested by dendronology yeah. and they are definitely Tudor oak beams. 
The other fascinating thing about the um, gatehouse is that inside uh, the gatehouse there are little niches. Yes. Where Sarah keeps some of her um, filing at the moment. So we're going to meet Sarah. Sarah's the uh, administrator. administrator and this yes. is her office. And um, so we know that the gatehouse was used as a dovecot. Oh, really? And it's got all the little um, niches in ah. um, where the doves nested. Yes, so it's, it's a fascinating building. So if we now go through into the courtyard. Yes. So it's lovely arched gates and some big hefty doors that there are was, open to us. And then what, the whole view opens up, doesn't it? And what makes this so special, uh, right at the beginning when we were talking about an unspoiled hidden gem, what makes this so special is that it is almost unchanged since Tudor times. And why is that? Because so many houses do get messed with, don't they, in the later Georgian, Victorian eras. Can you just summarise why it's in such a fantastic state of preservation? It, why it's so unchanged is because after the rising of the North in 1569 and Elizabeth confiscated the hall, it, was, it always had an owner from then on, uh, but the owners didn't live here. Uh, it was just the tenant farmer mm. living here. And so very little changed. I always say in my tours that there was no lady of the manor maintaining that, oh, I don't like this kitchen. Let's just <laughs> knock these walls down and, and whatever. Yes. So it really has remained totally unchanged. So when you walk through here, you could be walking into or you could be walking back to Tudor times. You certainly could. You Apart can imagine the them. Cars. Apart from the cars. Well, <laughs> we'll forgive those. People do live here. So um, it is a family home, isn't it, currently? It is a family home. And this, I think, most people on a tour comment on how special it is because yes. it's lived in. I agree wholeheartedly. I remember that from the very first time I came, the warmth as you go into the house. Yeah. It's amazing. And the knickknacks, the bits, the, the <laughs> coat stand, uh, it, it, it has that lovely lived in lived the in feeling. The cats roaming around and things like that. Absolutely. And this, of course, is where when the rising of the North happened in 1569 and Thomas Markenfield and Richard Norton from Norton Conyers uh, were very much amongst the ringleaders of the Northern Earls, they mustered here in this courtyard. Wow! And the leaders, uh, the men obviously were living out on the fields. Yes. But I always ask my um, group to imagine the horses, the, the yes. general the melee, melee and the clinking uh, of the bridles. Of and these Tudor yes. men uh, and their passionate, passionate religious zeal um, mustering here in the courtyard. It is quite something else. Shall we just move forward and just, just take a moment to consider probably the, the most impactful feature, which is like um, the Great Hall and then this adjacent tower block, which I presume were the original, were they the original privy chambers of the Lord and Lady of the Manor? Well, what you have is an undercroft, if we're looking at the little um, pointed archway in the Great Hall, <clears throat> then you have a, an inverted V yes. on the wall. There was a stone staircase leading, and you can see on the cobbles where the 
Oh, uh, yes. It's been, um, the outline of yeah, where it used outline. to be, yes. So there was a stone staircase leading up to a covered platform. Uh-huh. And that was the main entrance to the Great Hall. I see. So we had a porch almost at first floor level. That's right. Right. And so the family and guests, etc., would never have gone into the undercroft. (laughs) They would always have entered the Great Hall through that door. And then to your right, you have the uh, extension that John Cannon John de Markenfield built, the tower, which is part of the chapel and then the solar. So the solar is where a medieval family would retire for more privacy, Mm -hmm. basically. Otherwise, early medieval times, life just went on in the Great Hall continuously. If we're looking uh, to the left of the Great Hall, you've got, um, we call it West Cottage now, but you've got a building that was built in the middle of the 1400s, and that was built, all one, you know, one story, uh, that was built as a kitchen and a bakery. And of course, that was because it wasn't desirable to have kitchens and fires in your yes. main building with all the wood etc yes. um, and the interesting thing about that is can you see shields I can I was going to ask you there's a whole row of shields just under the line of the roof some are missing some are very weathered but those are the shields the middle one is a mark and field shield uh, coat of arms to the left are the um, sons and the heirs coat of arms oh. to the right are the coat of arms of the families that they married into oh, very nice. uh, so and it has been deciphered but don't ask me to remember them all <laughs> no, there's quite a few there's what sort of eight or nine up there yeah, so there's quite a it's, few it's fascinating and the interesting thing about that as well is that um built in 1400 so nearly a century after this was the the um the, the tower block, the tower block yes. was built um and we've got a crenellated chimney, yes, which is brilliant. It's a little bit over the top for a chimney, but, you know, it's nice. <laughs> it's a nice decorative feature. But you've got some fantastic windows there that obviously give light into the Grey Hall. Very tall, elongated with your, I think it's called quatrefoil, isn't it? That's Those... a quatrefoil, yes. So they are Gothic windows with the, with the slightly point, mm. well, the pointed mm. arch. On my right, on your right, Sarah, um, this wing here, which is a double-storey wing, that area from that, where that doorway is... Yes, yeah, so there's a blocked-in doorway, isn't There's a blocked-in doorway. In the centre. And there's a theory, not everybody agrees, but there's a theory that that was the main entrance before the gatehouse oh, was I built. See, yes. It does make sense coming from the medieval road. Yes, that would make sense, wouldn't it? Yes. But the, uh, so from there to the end of the, where the building meets the wall, that is where the tenant farmer has always lived. I see. And still lives today. And then the area uh, abutting the crenellated area mm. That is, in fact, now the private area for Lady Deirdre. I see. Uh, the current owner the of cum- the house. current owner who lives here. So perhaps we might go inside and maybe pick up the story of the Markhamfields a little bit. And that would be really interesting. Brilliant. OK, okay. let's do that.
Oh, it's nice to get inside. We've been lucky. It's, it's been terrible weather, hasn't it, the last couple of days? But the winds have subsided, the rain have subsided, but it's still cold out there. It's still cold out there, <laughs> but it is still February. But we have come into what today is the main entrance. Um, and there's a beautiful old stove there with a fire crackling in the grate. And I must admit, we had a lovely pot of tea and biscuits waiting for us when we arrived. So. Well, this, this place has obviously changed over the years. Where, where, we're in the main entrance now, but what would it have been in, back in the day? In medieval times, it, it was the undercroft. So it would have been purely a storeroom because we have to remember that the present farm buildings outside the uh, gatehouse, they weren't there. Um, so this would have been mm. the, the storage for the, the, the farm. And what happened it was that in, after the rising of the north, when the hall was attainted and confiscated by Elizabeth, um, things changed here. And for instance, all the vaulting, because this would have all been medieval vaulting, was ripped out and you can see the evidence of where it was. That wall to my right uh, was inserted. Wow. Uh, so it split up this one wow. long vaulted area. Yes. Uh, this roof was put in. You know, so this is a flat beams. plain roof before it would have had a lovely vaulted, vaulted ceiling. Vaulted ceiling etc. Yes. So that fireplace was originally up in the Great Hall. Uh, it's it's uh, medieval and it was brought down to the uh, which then became a kitchen. I that range in there at the moment is a Victorian range. So this became a kitchen for the farmhands. Uh, now we have a lot of big machinery and probably very few <laughs> farmhands, not in those days. Um, so it did change drastically. And of course, through that door to our to my left, left here. Uh, is the entrance to West Cottage, as we call it today, which would have been the bakehouse and the kitchen yes. in medieval times. And that makes sense because we're actually underneath the Great Hall, aren't we here? We are. So you have the kitchen and the bakehouse at the low end of the hall, which would have made perfect sense in terms of an arrangement for a, a medieval building. Yes, but when we go up into the Great Hall, Sarah, I'll show you another entrance at second, where, yes. where the same end into, because the food in fact was originally served from the kitchen up a staircase into the great hall. Right. So this was still in those days a storeroom. Right. So this is very much what happened after the hall was attainted. So why don't we go upstairs to the great hall and we can hear all about the history of the Markenfields from that very first Markenfield to our last Markenfield. Right. Follow me. Okay. The staircase we're going up now, of course, wasn't here because, as I explained, the main entrance uh, came in from the courtyard. So this was yes. put in much later. And this, in fact, is a Victorian uh, staircase. I have to say, this is such a beautiful room. I mean, you can clearly see it's medieval with its high kind of vaulted ceiling. I presume there would, it's not the original ceiling. This is not the original ceiling. It was a hammer beam roof originally. <sighs> Um, that would have looked amazing, but it is so cosy in here. 
And again, you'll be able to see pictures of this on the show notes page. But you just want to grab a book and curl up on one of those Absolutely. sofas. Absolutely, it is. But the restoration of the hall uh, is very much um, Ian Curtis and Lady Deirdre. And the library that you see in these wonderful oak um, bookcases, uh, it is um, Ian Curtis's library. Is it? Um, so it is, you could spend years here you reading really, all his wonderful books. You really want to, don't you? And I can imagine, although the fireplace isn't lit up here today, I can imagine on a cold winter's day with that fire roaring, you'd be quite happy. And of course it is still used by the family. Uh, we decorate it at Christmas, um, we do it all a la medieval with holly and ivy and candles. Oh, how and, wonderful. Uh, yes, it's still very much the centre of family life here. Okay, now we've got the admiration of the building behind us. Let's pick up the story of the Markham Fields. I'd love to hear more about the generations. Well, I've mentioned Canon John de Markham Field, uh, who died in um, 1353. And funnily enough, he was not buried in Ripon Cathedral, where by this time the Markham Fields had a Chantry Chapel there. So there are still two tombs, Markhamfield tombs and Ripon Cathedral. Um, and I just bring, need to mention, you've talked about Fountains Abbey, but of course the Markhamfield connection with Fountains Abbey was huge because landed gentry in those days, the aristocracy, liked to support abbeys for very obvious reasons, because the monks would be praying away for their souls and the souls of their families, etc. So the link between the Abbey and Markhamfield was very, very I strong. Mm. And we know that probably pre-middle of the 1200s, there were Markhamfields buried at Fountains Abbey. Only a couple, but uh -huh. certainly they were buried there. Um, John Markhamfield was buried in uh, York Minster because he was a great friend of the Dean of York Minster. And it was then his brother Andrew continued to uh, own the hall. Uh, and it was Andrew's son, so John's nephew, that inherited. And we have, from then on, quite a lot of Thomases and quite a lot of Johns. So we have na we've nicknamed them Thomas I, Thomas II, etc., etc. The main thing to appreciate is the fact that the Markham Fields were always very close to their sovereign. Uh, they were always there when, you know, they needed men to raise the army, etc. Uh, they were at the Battle of Culloden. They oh. were at the Battle of uh, Agincourt. So there was always a Markenfield very much to the fore with their sovereign. They mm. were an important fa medieval family. Mm. We come through the generations. We had... For instance, uh, Thomas, who rode out to Ravenspur, which is um, near Hull, to welcome back um, Henry Bolingbroke, who became, of course, Henry IV, who usurped Richard II's uh, throne. And we know uh, Henry IV had a lot of problems with the North. Uh, the Northerners have always been a problem. For some <laughs> always. Or other. Brute, always. Brute always. and beastly, as Henry VIII once said. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so we know that Markenfield gave Henry IV a great deal of support in, in the resurgence of mm. uh, problems in this area. Uh, we know that Ninian, who was the son of a Thomas, he was knighted on the battle of, of uh, the, on the battlefield at Agincourt. And then we come to Thomas III, and 
by this time, um, as illustrated by uh, Henry Bolingbroke, they were Lancastrians. But by the time Henry III uh, owned the hall, they had become Yorkists. Oh. And Thomas III was very, very close to Richard III. Oh, and he okay. became a knight of the body uh, to Richard III. And he was also high sheriff in this part of the world. And is that relationship, was that closeness due to the fact that Richard was brought up not a million miles away from here at Midlands? So there was a kind of that northern allegiance which caused him to, them, the family to move from Lancaster into York. Is, did we know? We honestly don't know, but that could be a factor. Very much so. Mm. But we don't quite know why they changed sides. Mm. So, uh, Henry IV, uh, Richard III, um, and the Battle of Bosworth, and we know that Thomas Markenfield was there was on he? the battlefield. So, on the wrong side, unfortunately. Mm. However, we know that Henry VII was, um, for reasons, maybe money, but he was magnanimous, and so Thomas wasn't actually held for treason. Uh, and maintained his lands and his um, title, um, and he continued to be high sheriff in this part of the world. Right. So Thomas IV, who was uh, the son of Thomas III, um, he died early, and he left a young son, um, another Thomas, uh, just to make life complicated, <laughs> Thomas V, but he was, because he was underage, he was put into the guardianship of Richard Norton, of Norton Conyers. Mm. And of course, Richard Norton and, uh, or the Nortons and the Markenfields had become very intertwingled through marriage by this time. He was a very devout man, a, a very young, passionate, devout Catholic. Uh, and of course, we've got Elizabeth I on the throne by this time. And the Catholics had given up all hope that their true religion would ever be reinstalled. Um, and he was extremely passionate. So he decided to go off to Europe to um, be able to practice his religion legally. I see, yes. Because it's the time of the Recassance, etc. Yes. Of course, the, the, the Recassance were Catholics who were undercover, basically, practising their religion undercover. Mm. Uh, it's the time where there were priest holes in, in these big houses. There wasn't ever a priest hole here, not mm. that we know of. Um, but they were on pain of death for not attending church, etc., etc. So um, Thomas V uh, decides, still very young, well, he's a come of age, but he's, he's mm. still a young man, uh, goes off to the Holy Land and he does a pilgrimage and he is made a Knight of the Holy Sepulchre, which is a great honour. And while he's there in the Holy Land, he meets up with a young man who has been very close to the papal court in Rome. And this young man, persuades Thomas that obviously Elizabeth is going to be excommunicated and if she is excommunicated then her subjects are excommunicated which would be a huge huge um, problem for mm. the Catholics. Um, so he persuades Thomas to come back to England um, and do something about it. By this time there had been rebellions, there had been you know, insurgencies, but always put down very efficiently by Elizabeth. But Thomas comes back and 
we have now the Northern Earls, as they were called. Mm. So we've got Northumberland, we've got Westmoreland, who are beginning to certainly rise to the occasion. So, I mean, it is just worth saying and emphasising that even after the dissolution of the monasteries and Henry VIII becoming head of the church, the, the North remained very Catholic and resisted the change in religion for a long time. So, I mean, you're talking now, we're 30 plus years on from the dissolution of the monasteries of Henry VIII making himself the head of the Church of England, and yet you, you, you still have, um, you know, large, large swathes of the North still committed to Catholicism. Absolutely. Because, of course, we've been through Edward VI, who was who was very Protestant, of I mean, much more Protestant. His father was still very Catholic, in fact. He just wanted to be head of the Roman Catholic Church in England. But we had his Prote vehement Protestantism. And then, of course, we had Mary, who brought back the Catholic faith and gave people a lot of hope that yes. their religion was now going to be um, sanctioned. Um, and then, of course, Elizabeth, and it became very obvious that it wasn't going to ever be allowed in this country yes. but yes the northerners again the northerners <laughs> troublesome northerners <laughs> you know were, were very um, um devout and we had the northern earls who had started to plan this um this uh, this rebellion but uh, thomas came back to england and persuaded his uncle richard norton the venerable richard norton as they called him uh, so they were very much part of the ringleaders. They weren't the ringleaders. So they weren't the Earl of Westmoreland or the uh, Earl of Northumberland, but they were in that cadre. They were very, yes, influential mm. in getting this uh, rebellion off the ground. The Northern Earls uh, met up in uh, Durham Cathedral, mustered in Durham. They had a, a mass, a Catholic mass. Uh, they then marched down here to Markhamfield and mustered in the courtyard here at Markhamfield. So this is why I said earlier, you know, try and imagine yeah. this happening. And we're talking 1569, aren't we? We're this? talking 1569. They had a, a last, they had a mass in the chapel uh, here at Markhamfield, I'll take you into the chapel. And um, then they marched out to battle. Uh, they had another mass in Ripon Cathedral where they upturned the Protestant altar, burnt Protestant prayer books, and then they marched off to battle. So they were heading south to London, essentially, obviously, to they Elizabeth's They were heading capital. for where Mary, Queen of Scots, was a prisoner. Oh, because the whole idea was to release Mary, Queen of Scots, uh, who was being imprisoned by Elizabeth, and to put her on the throne.
So at this point, where was Mary? She, she'd obviously been, um, she'd, she'd forced abdication, she'd fled to England, she was taken prisoner initially and taken to Bolton Castle. But where was she in 1569? I'm trying to remember my dates. By, this by, by 1569, she had just been moved from Bolton Castle. And then the rising started. And every time the rebels got close to where she was being um, held, held yeah. prisoner, she was moved. So this, of course, drew the rebels further and further south. It's described that their military zeal was not akin to their religious zeal <laughs> because they did make some big mistakes. And one of the biggest mistakes was leading an army. And we're not talking about a big trained army. We are talking about men off the land, etc., into battle in the middle of November. Uh, yeah. Huge mistake. Yeah. You can imagine the roads that, well, they weren't roads, the tracks, etc. So they were at a disadvantage right from the beginning. Um, and of course, Elizabeth had very good spies in the camp, in their camp, and were reporting back knowing exactly where the rebels were, she moved Mary further and further south. And this drew the rebels into sort of unknown territory. And eventually Elizabeth's army came up from London and the whole thing was trounced. It they didn't actually meet in conflict, did they? I think, I, I, if I remember from my reading, they, the, the rebel army essentially just dispersed. Just dispersed. Because by this time, there was no food in the fields, the, conditions were appalling so there were huge desertions the men off the land were just anxious to get back to the land and their families etc yeah. so there was a huge amount of desertion and yes Elizabeth's men just literally captured the ringleaders took them down to London for execution and that was it so there wasn't a battle you're quite right mm. however Richard Norton Thomas uh, along with Percy and uh, Westmoreland, escaped. And Richard Norton and his uh, nephew, Thomas, escaped to Hexham. They then continued up to Scotland, but the nets started closing, and so they had to flee across the water to Flanders. By this time, there was a huge diaspora of Roman Catholics in the Low Countries. Um, it was hoped, of course, that Philip II, who was the king of Flanders at the time, would be able to give them support. Mm -hmm. But in fact, that didn't happen. So it was, um, Thomas was found dead eventually on the floor of a peasant's cottage alone. Oh. Uh, his uncle, who was in his 80s by this time, was still being hunted by Elizabeth and eventually hunted down, but he was injured. So he was being brought back to England by boat to face trial, but he died um, at sea right. um, of his wounds. He was probably glad of it. <laughs> Which must have been a, a, a bit of a relief, yes. Yes. So that was Elizabeth then confiscated the hall, the lands, the title. Uh, so we're talking 1570, the end basically of the Markenfield, this Markenfield line. So it's interesting while you were talking about Elizabeth hunting down the various leaders. Um, again, I was doing a little bit of reading about um, the Northern Rising. And what surprised me is that she didn't just exact 
retribution on the leaders, did she? She actually ordered, I think that around, I read around 700 local people were rounded up from villages. And I think a good deal of them were taken to a place called Gallows Hill in Ripon, which by now is a housing estate, by the way. Um, but I'm sure was just an open field in its day outside the city walls. But I think a lot of people think of Elizabeth as being sometimes quite benevolent compared to Bloody Mary. But in fact, she knew how to uh, act and quash a rebellion when she needed to. So what really strikes me is the Markham Fields were, were ready to stand up for their religion and take part in acts of treason. So they were, they were brave. They stood, they stood up for what they believed in. Absolutely. And this is what I said earlier, and to emphasise how they were the movers and shakers in a lot of cases in this part of the world, or nationally. For example, they were also involved in the Pilgrimage of Grace, oh, really? which is, uh, we're talking 1539. Um, because a Norton had married into the Ask family, not Robert Ask, but the Ask family. And so when Robert Ask became the leader uh, of the Pilgrimage of Grace, the Markham Fields were very much in there supporting him. The surprising thing is that they actually, and the Nortons, they actually escaped being attainted at that time. Um, so they didn't lose their titles, etc. But Talking about Elizabeth and being, you know, a gentle, lovely, gentle lady. No, 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 no. <laughs> the ringleaders of the rising of the North were taken down to London and they were executed, hung, drawn and quartered. So even though they were of noble status, because quite often those who were of noble status were given the kinder execution of being beheaded. Um, so I'm not sure, were they were the earls? beheaded, do you know, or were they hung, drawn and quartered? Well, the, the uh, Percy's and the Neville's from Westmoreland, they escaped. They escaped with... So the, so the actual earls themselves yeah, but escaped. But the other ring, you know, the other people that were mm. captured, mm. Um, they were well, hung, hung, drawn, drawn and quartered. Yes, very yes. gruesome. Yes. Now, as I stand here, I'm looking sort of over your shoulder there, and I can see this glorious kind of Gothic archway that leads into what must be the chapel and you talked about the chapel before Kate about being a really important room uh, where the uh, earls heard mass before they rode out of here so I think what we're going to do is go inside and explore the chapel into the chapel which is just off the Great Hall here at Markenfield. 
Before we start about the history, maybe you could tell us a little bit about the actual building. You know, how old is this chapel, for example? Well, the chapel, where we are standing, is part of the original, you know, I keep talking about the original 1200 mm. part of the house. And then it was Canon John de Markenfield at the end of the 1200s, beginning of the 1300s, that built on from here. So we are talking up to 1200 and then, you know, the end of the 1200s. And he built the chapel, all one uh, story, mm. and then he continued to enlarge the original building to make the solar, oh. which is where the family would retire for privacy. Um, and then right at the end of the solar, you'd have the garderobe, which was the toilet. And of course, that was emptying into the to the moat. Moat. So the, this chapel basically is, is the beginning of the 13th, and this is the area which is crenellated outside, which we saw outside. The roof has been replaced, as you, as you can see, mm. and this wall in front of us was in a very, very bad state. What I haven't said to you in the past is that the hall was not lived in by an owner. Uh, it was always... A, a tenant farmer living here, but it wasn't lived in by an owner uh, until Lady Deirdre and her late husband, the seventh Lord Grantley, came back in the 80s to s restore the hall. I mean, it wasn't derelict by any manner of means, but to restore the hall and to live here when Lord Grantley retired. Uh, he died in 1985, uh, and it was then Lady Deirdre met Mr Curtis, who was a BBC scriptwriter and playwright, uh, and they came back up to continue the restoration, and they were married here in the chapel uh, in 2001, and it was the first marriage here since 1487. That's extraordinary. When a Markenfield married uh, a Norton. Oh, so it was very historic. Very historic day, how wonderful. Are there any features that you would particularly wanted to point out sort of architecturally in this chapel that mark it out as being from the date that it... it yes, was? the window, obviously, which is, is Gothic. And you can see there's three uh, quatrefoils and then the, the decorated window. So that's very much from the period. Then we have this arch here, which in fact was originally outside. Uh, it was brought in here for protection against weathering, etc. And you'll see the two label stops, which are badly weathered. Yes, yeah. And there are changes. You can see at the entrance to the chapel that there's been that there have been changes. Yes, over it's a bit time. of a mishmash of what, uh, but <laughs> not not a great deal. Yeah. Wonderful. So um, now we were talking, of course, about the Markham Fields and their association with the rising of the North in 1569. So there was a particular event that's very much related to the chapel, and maybe you could tell us a little bit about that. Yes, when the Northern Earls, so the Percys and the uh, Nevilles, uh, they rode down, they'd had a mass in Durham Cathedral, they rode down here to join Thomas, his Thomas uncle. Markenfield Thomas and Markenfield uncle. and his uncle, Richard Norton. Uh, they mustered in the courtyard uh, and they had a mass here. So they said a mass here, the leaders, obviously, and then it was from here that they rode out to battle. 
basically. And it might be useful just to say what the rising of the North was really about. What were these earls and Thomas Markenfield fighting for? They were fighting for what they termed as the, the true religion. They were being uh, persecuted, the Catholics by this time, by, by uh, Elizabeth, uh, having had Mary on the throne, uh, which obviously raised their hopes that the Mary religion, Tudor, of course, Mary, Catholic Mary, Mary Tudor. And then Elizabeth, it was quite plain that that was going to be the end of, and of course she was very, very hard on the Catholics. I mean, it was the days of the Recessants mm-hmm. when they were hiding priests and they, on pain of death if they didn't go to church on a Sunday. Mm-hmm. So they really were in despair, basically, that they were ever going to be able to practice their religion freely in this country. And of course, the Northerners were traditionally very Catholic And they had, of course, their great white hope in the form of Mary, Queen of Scots. Do you want to tell us a little bit about how she became sort of the the ringleader, if you like, or the figurehead might be a better um, term for her? Well, their last hope was that if they could um, release Mary, Queen of Scots, she was a prisoner by this time with Elizabeth I, if they could release her, uh, put her on the throne, then obviously they would be back in business, as it were. Uh, So that was what the rising of the North was all about. It was an effort to release Mary, Queen of Scots, uh, to dethrone Elizabeth, put Mary on the throne, and then obviously the Catholics would be in a position to, um, to practice their religion in peace. And of course, it failed. <laughs> um, but you were mentioning a couple, apart from the Markham Fields, I'm, I'm very much aware of this splendid portrait behind us of Sir Richard Norton. And I thought it'd be just nice really to touch on, on a little bit more of his history and why these paintings are here. Well, the Nortons and the Markham Fields had become very intertwingled through marriage. They're local families, two They're local, a local families. They're local family. They, they've, uh, Norton Conyers is still a, a, a stately home, probably five, six miles from here. They would become very intertwingled through marriage. And Thomas Markenfield, fifth Thomas Markenfield, uh, his father died early. And so he was put into the guardianship of his uncle, Richard Norton. And Richard Norton, they called him the Venerable Richard Norton. He was obviously a very gentle man um, and a very passionate man about his religion. Thomas went off to France to practice his religion in peace. Uh, he was a, a passionate young man. Um, he then went on to, the, uh, to do the pilgrimage in the Holy Land. Mm-hmm. He became a Knight of the Holy Sepulchre, which was a great honour. And it was while he was there that he was persuaded to come back to England uh, and join his uncle and the Northern Earls, as they were called, in finally rebelling against Elizabeth. There had been other rebellions, but they'd been quashed successfully. So this was the the last The last big one. The last big chance, Mm, basically. And and he was intimately involved with that. Thomas came back to England and persuaded his uncle uh, that they really had to do something. So they were part, they were certainly amongst the ringleaders because the Northern Earls by this time had started a real movement Uh, and they were part of the ringleaders. So the Northern Earls mustered, they had a mass up in Durham Cathedral and then they marched down here, joined Thomas and uh, his uncle. They mustered in the courtyard 
Richard was the ringleader here. He was the standard bearer. And there's a description of him on his white charger with his white hair and his white beard flowing in the wind um, as they led out. And he was the standard bearer. And that picture over there, Sarah, is a picture of the standard. It's the five wounds of Christ. And it, the original is in... Um, Arundel Castle today. Ah. And is that the same banner that was used during the Pilgrimage of Grace in the 1530s? It's not the same banner, but the five wounds of Christ were also used. I thought I, I, thought I recognised yeah, that there was... On the banner of, the, of the, uh, the Pilgrimage of Grace, yes. So this chapel today, it looks like it's still in use, is it? Very much so. Um, there's a programme of services, not just Roman Catholic Masses, but there's Anglican Communion as well. And the one very poignant service is held in August, and the monks from Amberforth College come down, and it's a sung mass, and it's in memory of Richard Norton, Thomas Markenfield and Thomas's sister Anne because she also went into exile and eventually went into a monastery, uh, to a convent in Portugal. Oh, and that is an extremely poignant service. But the chapel is open to people who wish to come and join in with a service. So it is open to the public so you could come along and participate? You can. That's yes, wonderful. you would book it through Sarah um, uh, that you were coming. But yes, it's, it, it's not a parish church by any means, but you are welcome to come and pray, pray here. Thank you. Well, that's, fun that's fantastic. Thank you so much for showing us around the chapel today. Oh, Sarah, today. it's been such a pleasure. <laughs> so we've come to the end of our tour of Markham Field Hall and it has been just glorious. But I'm now joined by Sarah. Hello, Sarah. Hello, Sarah. <laughs> yes, whoa. <laughs> so you're the administrator here. We mentioned you earlier on in oh, the podcast. Dear. So <laughs> we're now getting a chance to catch up with you because I wanted to talk to you about how people can come and visit the hall. You know, what's your website? When are you open? How to get? How do people get to see this glorious place for themselves? Well, Markenfield is open by appointment. So if people would like to come and visit, they can go to the website, which is simply markenfield.com. And there on the visitors and the tickets page, they will find information about how they can book what we call a tiny tour. Um, well, tell we, us about the tiny tours. They began post-pandemic when we had to limit the number of people that could visit the house at any one time. And they just worked. People really enjoyed them. We were bringing people in, sort of a dozen people at a time for a guided tour, and then very importantly, tea and cake afterwards. And Very important. <laughs> and compared to 200 people wandering around the house on one of our old open days, they just went down an absolute treat. And so we've decided to carry them on. Fantastic. One of the upsides of COVID, eh? Yes. It, well, it had to have an upside, It had to suppose. have an upside. But yes, what a wonderful way to experience the hall. We think so. Um, and the feedback has, has been really great. And can that be at any time of the year? It can. Um, we do put dates on the website from April through to October, so people can book on as an individual. If you've got a little group of friends or family, we can do them at any time of year. Wonderful, wonderful. And I have one further question for you. Do you do anything around Christmas time? 
Well, yes, we do. It's weather dependent and it's also virus dependent, unfortunately. <laughs> um, but yes, we do. We do decorate the hall. In fact, Kate very kindly comes in and decorates the hall for us, um, which looks magnificent with holly and ivory, ivory, <laughs> ivy and greenery. Uh, and yes, we do do tiny Christmas tours as well. Because that would be really special, I can well imagine. Hmm, Lovely. Well, thank you very much for that, Sarah. And folks, you must make sure that you put Markham Field Hall on your itinerary if you are heading up to North Yorkshire. There's quite a few Tudor-related sites in the area, so make sure this is part of them. Well, thank you very much, ladies. It's been wonderful to meet you both. Really appreciate your time here today. It's been a huge pleasure. It has. Thank you for coming. Before we finish the show, remember you can support my work via my Patreon programme, where various levels of sponsorship are available, starting at just $1 a month. Check out all the details of how to become a patron in the link included with this podcast. Oh, and don't forget, you can be part of my closed Facebook group, where fellow time travellers like you hang out with me and each other to share some of our favourite things about visiting the UK. From great Tudor places to visit, to the best way to take your cream tea in an afternoon. From the latest travel news to the traditional Sunday roast. So don't miss out and you can apply to join by clicking on the link in the description. So now it's back to close the show. What a delight it was to revisit Markenfield Hall and to remind myself of just how beautiful it is and what fantastic Tudor story it's got to tell. So, of course, remember to check out the website markenfieldhall.com to find out all you need to know about visiting one of the loveliest places which you have now most definitely heard about. Well, my friends, I'll be back next month with another episode of the Tudor History and Travel Show. I'll see you on the virtual road again soon. for tuning in to today's episode of the Tudor History and Travel Show. If you've loved the show, please take a moment to subscribe, like and rate this podcast so that we can spread the Tudor love. Until next time, my friends, all that remains for me to say is happy time travelling. <laughs>